a key U.S. ally since World War II and the most important country in Latin America. But all that could change. In this special report, we look at why Brazil is strategically vital to the United States, what happens if the Chinese regime takes over, and the consequences of Washington turning a blind eye. Welcome to China in Focus, I'm Tiffany Meyer. A wealth of resources, from critical rare earth minerals to agriculture to the largest clean water supply in the world, Brazil has it all. But it's being infiltrated by America's biggest threat, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. It could soon reach the point of no return. China influence in Brazil is growing fast, and this influence should worry the United States. That influence is fourfold. First up, the upcoming elections in October. And if we were to watch uh, Brazil go the way, say, Chile, which uh, just recently voted in a, uh, a, a kind of an anti-American regime, uh, this could be devastating to America's national interests in our own hemisphere. And, 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 I, and I say in our own hemisphere, and there's some obvious historic importance to the Monroe Doctrine to America's national history. That's Captain Jim Fennell, former Director of Intelligence and Information Operations for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. A U.S. ally since World War II, Brazil is ideologically more aligned with the U.S. than communism. But while many countries in South America, like Peru and Argentina, have fallen, Brazil and Paraguay are still divided. They have not yet folded. But the upcoming election in October is putting some on edge. There's a military situation also. Uh, in Latin America, Brazil possesses the largest coastline in the Atlantic Ocean. It's strategic for military reasons. If Brazil falls under CCP rule, that has massive strategic implications for the U.S. and allies. The Chinese regime would be able to lock up the Atlantic. That's because China's military, officially called the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, already has control over space facilities in Argentina. And we already know that China has designs and, and interests in the Azores and the strategic uh, air base there at Lages, which would allow potentially Chinese strategic bombers to fly out and fly patrols against the United States East Coast even. But it goes beyond the Atlantic. Fennell notes the Chinese regime's strategic goals are more ambitious. We had the commander of U.S. Uh, Africa Command in March, General Townsend, uh, comment about his great concern about Equatorial Guinea on the west coast of Africa. So now all of a sudden, if you have uh, both Argentina and Brazil having a pro-China uh, outlook, and they start allowing Chinese fishing fleets, Chinese uh, maritime militia, and then Chinese naval warships and submarines to operate in the region, all of a sudden, uh, China now has an expanded footprint into not just the Pacific, where we're seeing them expand towards Hawaii. But now, all of a sudden, you're going to see them come up through the South Pacific. From a naval perspective, the Chinese regime has its sights on controlling all strategic waterways. Rafael Fontana, Brazilian journalist and author, notes the third point is economic. Brazil is the largest economy in Latin America. Brazil has uh, alone more than half of the South America combined GDP. It's the greatest USA ally in the hemisphere. 
So Brazil is important for both trade and business. While Brazil and China established formal diplomatic ties in 1974, the relationship didn't take off for some time. In 1993, that relationship was pushed to that of a strategic partnership. And in 2004, Brazil recognized China as a market economy. Also in 2004, it became an all-weather strategic partnership. That means China would give support in every and any condition. A few years later, in 2009, China surpassed the U.S. as Brazil's top trading partner. Today, one-third of the country's trade is funneled into China. But how did the Chinese regime make it happen? The Brazilian government was blackmailed by the Chinese regime. Uh, if Brazil didn't allow Huawei to build the 5G infrastructure inside the country, China wouldn't sell coronavirus vaccines to Brazil. Fontana details that situation in his book, Chernobyl, A Journey Through the Guts of the Communist Dictatorship. The title Chernobyl is a reference to Chernobyl, as in the CCP is a nuclear time bomb. Fontana worked as a journalist in China. After returning to Brazil, Chinese telecoms giant Huawei hired him as a PR director. Through that relationship, he got an inside look into how the regime operates. When I was interviewed by the vice president of the communications in Brazil, I realized that he was a member of the CCP. A few days later, I attended a meeting in Sao Paulo, and all the top exec executives in the office were members of the party. And that went further during his time abroad. After a while, I traveled to the headquarters of Huawei in China, in the city of Shenzhen. There was no surprise. All the top positions in the company are occupied by CCP members. And of course, the CEO, Renjin Faith, is himself a member of the party. Now, uh, we can think of something here. If all the members of Huawei, the top executives, are members of the CCP, who is controlling the company? I think you have the answer. Fontana also sheds light on how Huawei functions. It operates as a private company when it's uh, like building infrastructure and, well, trying to, to find new clients. But of course, all the negotiation comes from the government of China. And it's really dangerous because uh, Huawei and other big tech companies of China they are working uh, for the, the CCP purposes. In other words, there are no private companies in China. So what does that mean for a country that's doing business with the Chinese regime? When you bring Huawei into a country like Brazil, the most populous uh, country in South America and the largest and the richest, you now have access to all, no, all new sorts of data uh, that China will want to have. Brazil and Huawei just signed a major deal earlier this year to open the first 5G city in Brazil. Part of the deal aims to realize a smart city through 5G networks. Smart cities combine technologies like networked cameras, sensors and location services and the rest of the Internet of Things to collect a wide variety of data in order to control things like traffic, energy usage and crime and to augment state power. While it's said to improve residents' lives, reports note China has used those same technologies to track and monitor ethnic minority groups with Uyghurs, which the U.S. and other countries say the Chinese regime is committing genocide against. 
It's an accusation the Chinese regime denies. Brazil signing off on this new uh, uh, contracts with Huawei really reinforces China's digital footprint inside of Brazil. And so China is pursuing what they call digital China, where they want to digitize everything in the world and have China control all the data. That's on top of Huawei already servicing 95% of Brazil, according to Huawei's local website. But Fennel notes this has implications beyond Brazil's borders. Going back to the election, if Brazil turns away from aligning with the U.S. Now all of a sudden China's going to have access to all this uh, records and interactions with the United States and, and the Western, uh, Western world. And from a military perspective, that puts uh, the relationship between the United States and Brazil at risk because now the United States is going to be less likely to have military engagement with Brazil out of fear that Brazil's networks are corrupted and have uh, vulnerabilities from the PLA and the, and the Chinese Communist Party's uh, digital spies. But beyond telecoms, Brazil is both the biggest country in South America, but also the biggest economy there. That makes it doubly important. But there's more. It's also rich in natural resources. Brazil has the second largest reserve of rare earth minerals after China. The U.S. has been trying to lessen its reliance on China for this critical resource. But by dominating Brazil and Vietnam, the CCP can influence about 80 percent of global rare earth minerals production. Another area is food production. Brazil is the largest soybean exporter in the world and the fourth largest food producer. The CCP has been making inroads into agribusiness, likely to secure food supplies for its mainland. But its strategies to gain control involve falsely claiming problems with Brazilian food to later on buy them at bargain levels after prices lower. China's going to be really seeking out and trying to get and acquire the access to food production. They would prefer to own the means of that production, a very mercantilistic way of looking at the world. Uh, but initially, they'll buy and sell and have contracts with, with, with any new nation like Brazil. Uh, and eventually, they want to be able to buy farmland and have access and produce it themselves so that they could have an assurance uh, that they could get that food. They need that. So this is a vulnerability for China. Uh, a good administration that was paying attention would recognize that and use that as leverage in our negotiations with Brazil, but also to be able to show how we can use that against China to make sure that their bad behavior and their aggressiveness is held in check. It's called deterrence. We need to deter their actions. And one way to deter that is through strong alliances. But Fontana notes when the Chinese regime comes in with investments, it often doesn't go well for the host country. When China is bringing the, the, the workers, the loans of money from, from Chinese banks, we're going to be like slaves of China for a long time. Beijing's infrastructure outreach policy, known as the Belt and Road Initiative, has also been dubbed debt trap diplomacy. But it's also about this larger issue of freedom versus, you know, we've talked about before the slavery that comes with communism and what Chinese communists uh, and the PRC stand for. And so we really don't want to see major countries like this, uh, you know, turn towards uh, that kind of regime and that kind of philosophy and, and political ideology. Given all that's at stake, what can be done? It takes a whole of government approach on our end. Uh, it takes a leadership in Washington that's going to take the time to uh, go down to South America, meet with the leaders there, 
have real negotiations, have real discussions, show real attention. Uh, it means to expand our presence in the sense of not not in military force necessarily, but our presence in terms of saying that we're a reliable partner and how can we help you and how can you help us. But that's not all. Fennell points out. You need your diplomats there. You need, uh, you know, the free market capitalists need to be incentivized to go down there and trade. Uh, we, we have military relations, but we can expand those. Uh, and then we need to be talking with them about information warfare and strategic communications and what are the themes that are important to South, uh, to, to Brazil and America combined? And how can we uh, promote those? But it takes uh, it takes trust. People have to trust us. Fontana adds. After the pandemic, the image of China, of the CCP, is worsening in South America, in Latin America in general. That's the moment when the United States should come and talk and negotiate, say, hey, I am your partner. I am your, I am your historical partner. It's not China. We are part of the same continent, right? We are the Americas, so let's work together. Plus, according to Fontana, it's not just the U.S. helping Brazil. There's a major way Brazil can help the U.S. Another point is uh, drug cartels, as I told you before, are growing again, and this is bringing worries to the U.S. citizens. Chile, Argentina, Bolivia, Venezuela, and now Colombia are taken by the CCP. Brazil is the last patient in the region to help the U.S. to keep both the communism and drug cartels out of America. Fontana explains at the end of the day, it's remembering which side stands for what. We have the same purposes, we have the same uh, ambitions, and we have the respect for freedom. That's the most important. But as experts warn, if Americans and Washington continue to turn a blind eye, it won't just be the rising Chinese regime encircling the world. It'll be a direct threat on the daily lives of Americans in the United States. Crime will continue to rise, not just around the world, but here at home. But as experts add, it's not too late. There are options available, but time is running out. Coming up, President Joe Biden is set to speak with his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping later this month. What are the pressure issues on the table? And Chinese authorities are charging rideshare company Didi with a sky-high fine. But on the other hand, investors question whether there could be good news on the horizon. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. News on the U.S.-China front. President Joe Biden plans to speak with his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping by the end of the month. Right now, tensions are simmering between the two countries over Taiwan and trade. Here's more. U.S. President Joe Biden said on Wednesday he expects to speak with Chinese President Xi Jinping by the end of the month. I think I'll be talking to President Xi within the next 10 days. The long-discussed call would be their first since March. 
Washington calls Beijing its main strategic rival and said high-end engagement was key to maintaining stability and keeping away from conflict. The impending call also comes at a crucial moment as Biden considers lifting some Trump-era tariffs on Chinese goods worth hundreds of billions of dollars to reduce inflation at home. And as tensions continue to simmer over the status of Taiwan, Biden's administration has reiterated what it called its rock-solid commitment to the island's security. But on Wednesday, Biden appeared to cast doubt on a reported planned visit to the island by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi next month. Well, I, I, I think that the military thinks it's not a good idea right now, but uh, I, I don't know what the status of it is. Beijing, which claims the democratically ruled island as its own, said on Tuesday that it would respond with forceful measures if Pelosi did visit Taiwan. Pelosi's office declined to comment on whether the visit is moving forward, citing security concerns. Plans for the trip were reported by the Financial Times, which also said the White House had expressed concerns. Chinese rideshare company Didi slapped with a sky-high fine. It's being made to pay more than a billion dollars over its data collection practices as it prepares to delist from New York. That comes as investors question whether this year's repeated blows to China's tech sector are finally coming to an end. Here are the details. China has fined ride-hailing app DD Global just over 8 billion yuan, or almost $1.2 billion. Regulators say the firm illegally collected user data and carried out data processing that seriously affected national security. In an unusual move, the company's chief executive and president were also fined. Didi said Thursday that it accepted the penalty and would rectify its practices. The app fell foul of watchdogs last year when it went ahead with a New York share sale despite being told to pause. Regulators almost immediately launched a probe. They told DD to stop registering new customers and made app stores remove its products. On Thursday, there was no confirmation whether those restrictions would now be lifted. But they have hit DD badly, allowing rivals to chip away at its dominance in ride hailing. The company has delisted its shares in New York, and Reuters sources say its apps have been updated to ensure compliance. Now the firm and investors hope it all marks an end to a probe that has cast a shadow over Didi and China's whole tech sector. Didi is not operating in the U.S., though American rideshare company Uber is one of Didi's top shareholders. But that's not all. In other road-related news, several countries around the globe are pushing to ban traditional gas-powered cars and replace them with all-electric vehicles in the near future. But the proposal could lead to some problems, and one of them involves China's supply chain dominance. And it is Colin Fredrickson has more. Countries all around the world have come up with plans to get rid of internal combustion engine vehicles and replace them with zero-emission vehicles. Norway wants all vehicles to be zero-emission by 2025, the most ambitious of all. Denmark, Iceland, Ireland, Israel, the Netherlands, and Sweden want 100% zero-electric vehicles by 2030. China and Japan want all their cars to be fully electric by 2035. And France, Portugal, and Spain want all cars to be zero-emission vehicles by 2040. 
But electric vehicles still pollute the environment, even though they themselves don't directly emit CO2. Charging them requires electricity. Most electricity in the U.S. comes from fossil fuels. One study from the National Bureau of Economic Research found that EVs could actually be worse for the environment because of this. Another study found that charging vehicles at night could increase carbon emissions by 23 to 27 percent. And another problem is making the lithium-ion batteries that power electric vehicles. Who makes all the supplies? for the batteries, so that would be China. Lauren Fix is an automotive expert at Car Coach Reports. Fix says China dominates the global production of lithium-ion batteries and their forerunner materials, and more. It has to come down to components and parts and batteries. And if China's controlling the bulk of the supply issue as well as the microchips, they can supply and make the winners and the losers in this industry. While China only has the fourth largest lithium reserves in the world, it's invested heavily to dominate every step, from getting it out of the mine to putting it into the car. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. China holds over 70% of the global market share for lithium batteries. That includes the entire supply chain, from extracting lithium ore to producing the batteries. In comparison, the U.S. only owns single-digit shares of the market. Experts say the U.S. has enough lithium ore underground to meet demand. But there's still a long way to go to turn that raw material into lithium batteries. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, U.S. reserves of lithium are sufficient to meet its growing demand. But getting it out of the ground is costly, time-consuming and difficult. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.